business is the social institution that makes the world go round. You know, at one point in time, it was government and monarchies. And another point in time, it was religion. But now it's business. It's business. And so Absolutely. if we want to change the world, we have to change business. Greetings. I'm Leanne Mallory, and this is Rise Leaders Radio. Wow. I am still reeling from this conversation with my guest today, Nathan Havey. Nathan's on a mission. He's on a mission to prove that capitalism is the vehicle for transforming the crises we find ourselves in, whether we're concerned about the climate or social or economic disparities. And I bet after listening to this, you'll believe so too. At least I hope that's what you walk away with because I do believe that business really is the primary institution for transforming these spaces. Nathan is an example for us all on how to craft a career by weaving together our skills, passions, and sense of purpose. You'll hear how he has molded his love of theater and film, his interest in public policy, his talent for storytelling, and core belief that everyone can and should thrive, how this has resulted so far into an inspirational documentary called Beyond Zero. Beyond Zero is a story about a Fortune 500 company that transformed from being a self-described plunderer of the earth to one whose product actually contributes to its chances for survival. And even as I read that last sentence, I'm remembering all the times during our conversation that I got chills. I got cold chills listening to Nathan tell these stories. Companies like KKR and UPS and universities like Yale and ESCP and the University of Michigan are using this film to teach the expanded game of business. Nathan is a co-founder of the Institute for Corporate Transformation, where he produced the acclaimed podcast miniseries, 10 Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism, which, by the way, I also highly recommend. He wrote and leads a certificate program in change leadership, and he speaks to, trains, and collaborates with people around the globe who are working to create a world that works for everyone. There are plenty of takeaways from this conversation, but I'm going to stop here and get on to the podcast. Check out the show notes for links to all the resources that Nathan shares and for how to get in touch with him. Enjoy. Nathan, I am so excited uh, to have you here with me today and to share everything that you're doing with all the listeners out there. We're coming right off of you being in Dallas at SMU, at, at a Dallas Conscious Capitalism event, where then you went on the full kind of tour of Texas with your film that's new for us, Beyond Zero, although you produced it in 2020 and then the pandemic hit and everything got put on delay. But I'm just so excited for you and for us in your storytelling capabilities. So first of all, just thank you so much for being here. It's my absolute pleasure, Leanne. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. I want to start by setting some context. I think that the folks listening today probably have a really broad passions, broad perspective, and may or may not have heard the term conscious capitalism, conscious business, stakeholder capitalism. That's, that's your sweet spot. So I wonder if you could just start by setting a definition for us there. For sure. Yeah. And thanks, Leanne. All of those terms are referring to is, is uh, sort of different flavors of one core idea. And the idea is uh, that, you know, contrary to what Milton Friedman said in the 1970s, that, that the only social responsibility of business is to increase profits. And then we, we wait and let the people who gain from those profits support whatever charities they want to support. And in that way, we can have some sort of a social conscience for our society. What all of these terms, conscious capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, what, what they refer to is that, that Friedman got it wrong. 
that, that in fact, we have, to we have to understand that business models have real world consequences and that the market doesn't always perfectly value different things. And that for business leaders to be able to be responsible for uh, the value that they're creating in financial terms is a given for business. Uh, this is not a departure from that. We must have profit. Uh, otherwise, a business will die. However, what we have seen is that the best way to make that profit is by also measuring and valuing other kinds of, of value or capital. So environmental capital, uh, social capital, uh, those things very much impact uh, the way that a business can create financial capital. Um, but a lot of business leaders have been taught to ignore the environmental capital and the social capital that is the foundation upon which financial capital can be created. Or to say it differently, business people need to understand the consequences their companies have on the environment and on humanity. And they need to try to make sure that those are positive consequences. And that's the way that we can actually work together to create a world that works for everyone. Not because they're woke, not because they're trying to <laughs> bow to political pressure, but because it actually is the best way for capitalism to operate. And so that's, that's what those movements are trying to get business leaders to understand. Great. And you have produced an amazing documentary. And I just have to say again, the storytelling is fantastic. You produced a documentary called Beyond Zero. And I want you to let people know too how they can get a hold of that, how they can watch it, because it really is. I think it's a game changer because it's a story about Interface, which is a flooring company, and its founder, Ray Anderson. He did not found the company as a conscious business, and it was not a conscious, it was, it was doing a lot of harm to the environment. He had a wake-up call, and I'd love for you to talk about that, but this movie, this documentary really does highlight how it can be done. So, why don't you just give us a kind of an overview of Beyond Zero even in the, the title Beyond Zero, it's, it's like they're not talking about zero impact. It's like, can the business actually make a positive impact on the environment? That's right. Yeah. And so the story begins in 1994, uh, where we find Ray Anderson, who is a, a cutthroat competitive capitalist, right? His own description of himself, that he had fought tooth and nail to bring this new concept of carpet tiles, which was a little niche product in Europe. And he he saw that it could become the flooring for the commercial office space. And so in 1973, he, he founded the company. And by 94, he had built it to be Fortune 500. It was the biggest uh, carpet uh, company in the world that was making carpet tiles. And, and he had, he had uh, built it into a billion-dollar company. And so it was successful by every measure and, and frankly was was uh, was starting to look towards the exits, was starting to plan for his retirement when the company lost a huge order. And the reason that they lost the order was because the company had an environmental consultant and the interface salespeople could not answer the question, what are you doing for the environment? And so Ray remembered the day in 1973 when they had not one order on the books, and he knew that a great company is always just one order away from being out of business. If there's something you miss, if the competition beats you, uh, then then uh, that could be it. And so he really wanted them to take it very seriously. Uh, what is it that we don't get about the environment? We comply with all the laws. What is What else is there to do? And so he founded this task force uh, to figure out where interface should be on the environment and charged a guy named Jim Hartsfeld to run it. And Hartsfeld didn't have any idea what to do. So he turned around and said, okay, Ray, you come and give us your environmental vision. And Ray didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it, and finally relents and commits to give an environmental vision. And as the day approaches, he doesn't know what he's going to do. He's, he's sweating bullets. He doesn't know what the heck the environmental vision should be for this company. And so at, at that moment, um, Paul Hawkins' book, The Ecology of Commerce, arrives on his desk. He starts flipping through it, and, and, and it's what he describes as a spear-in-the-chest moment, right? So Ray was a, was a trained engineer. That was, that's what he did in school. And uh, his engineer's mind just really resonated with the case that Hawken lays out in that book, which is that all of the macro life support systems on Earth are in decline, and they're in decline because of industrial activity. And as he read 
what Hawkins said, he realized that he, as the chief executive of a global industrial company, was part of the vanguard that was driving the decline of the life support systems on earth. And so it absolutely shocked him to his core. And then he walks into this meeting. It was on August 31st of 1994 in a little hotel room in suburban Georgia and uh, shocked the 18 people that were part of that meeting with this environmental vision that Interface would become not just a little better for the environment, that they would actually figure out how to become a restorative enterprise. Mm giving back more to the environment than they take. And the immediate reaction is people thought he was insane. They thought he'd been uh, you know, diagnosed with a terminal illness and was trying to get right with God before he died. But the subject of the film and of what Interface has done since 1994 is figure out how to rise to that challenge. And, and not giving away the story, but today we'll just say that they are selling a carpet tile product that actually has a carbon negative footprint so they're able to actually sequester carbon in the manufacturing process and get to a, a net zero or a beyond zero. So it's net positive carbon, uh, a beyond zero product that is actually actively pulling carbon out of the air. And they, they've also uh, done uh, everything else they can do in terms of their water, their toxics, um, their emissions uh, to get them to, uh, to a functional zero. And they're still working on now figuring out how they can increase their positive impact. And so that's what this company has done. And that's the, that's the story that happens in the movie. Yeah, it's such a fascinating, and even when you're speaking, I got chills a few times there. Just to be clear, Interface is the producer of Floor, F-L-O-R. Correct. Correct. All right, because we have those in several rooms of, of my house, and that may be actually something that many people that are listening today might be more familiar with are the floor tiles. And those are so much fun to play with. That's a whole different uh, conversation. But yeah, and floor is their exactly, and floor is their residential line. Most of their business is in the commercial space, uh-huh. but but floor is the residential brand. What really stands out? There's so many things that stands out, but the first thing that stands out is just um, how kind of the universe conspired for a potential client to ask the question and kind of demand to know what are you doing for the environment at the same time that this book miraculously shows up on his desk. Now, I don't know if it was really that miraculous. It sounds pretty miraculous, but he had to also be in a place to be open. Yes. And there was something going on that he actually wanted to make a positive impact because he could have just like even read the book and just said, yeah, that's not for me. I'm going to keep going with what I'm doing here. It's just such an inspirational story to me because so many things came together at just the right time. And he, I guess it's just part of his competitive nature and wanting to be the best that he threw down the gauntlet and they never looked back. He never hesitated. My understanding is some of their investors thought he had gone crazy that that their stock dropped. So he really had to hold on to his dream and his commitment because it was not easy people thought he'd get over it or you know they the company would go down because of this new dream they did. And, and, uh, and just a couple of quick bits of backstory on this. So Jim Hartsfeld uh, said in his interview, and this is on the cutting room floor, it's not in the film, oh. uh, but he said that it's like when you have uh, in chemistry, and I am not a chemistry person, so I hope I get this right. But when you have a super saturated solution that you can just give the glass a tap and it crystallizes right? That that's where Ray was, where he was, there wasn't much purpose and meaning anymore. He had done what there was to do as a CEO and an entrepreneur growing something from nothing to Fortune 500 to a global corporation. He had done that. And he was a person of deep faith and was definitely searching for more meaning and purpose. Was also concerned about legacy and all kinds of different things. And so you have all of that in the solution. Mm. Then you have this challenge that threatens what he had created, Right. And you also have Paul Hawkins' book and the way that the book, well, I'll say that the backstory in that in just a second, but you have this book that shows him that what he built is actually not a great, grand, praiseworthy accomplishment and legacy, but it, it is in certain ways, right? He was, you know, provided jobs for all of those people and all their families. That's the normal language of what capitalism yes. does that's good, right? And it was. 
And what is also true at the same time is it was driving the processes that may well lead to an ecological collapse that could have the world as we know it be gone forever. And he accepted that with his engineer's mind. And so new challenge, new purpose, and he was all in. And so, so that's sort of what happened. But the other way that the book came to be there, that's kind of interesting, because this is something where we often are not aware of the actions that we can set in motion with small gestures, right? So on the one hand, you have the consultant that wouldn't let go of this, yes, and what are you doing for the environment? Right? So that's something that any of us can do is just be asking that question whenever we buy a product. Um, certainly, if we work in a company, we can do that with our supply chain. Um, this consultant was doing it because it was their consultant. Now, at the same time, you have the daughter of a woman named Joyce Laval that was part of Ray's team and interface. And in a college class, they had her read The Ecology of Commerce. And she was so moved by it. She had given it to her mother and said, Mom, you need to read this. You need to have people at your company read this. And it was Joyce who just passed the book to Ray. And there were all kinds of books that were coming across Ray's desk. But because of where he was, this book, at that moment, it started what has become the rest of this totally amazing journey. And so could it have been planned that way? Of course not. But what there is for us, each of us to do is, is to just do the things that we see to do. And you never know what the other extenuating circumstances are that when your small gesture of giving a book recommendation might be the thing that changes a piece of the world. That makes me feel so good because I have so many times purchased several books that I really liked and then even have given them to like physicians like my doctor because there's I don't want to say just like alternative ways of medicine, but just just non-traditional. And so when I find something I like, I'll buy several copies and just hand them out and leave them with people. And that's so, I did not know the backstory there, but I'm really happy to know that sometimes that book that you just put on someone's desk or hand out will get to the right person at the right time and really change how, how they're thinking. One of the things that I'm curious about, I love your opinion on this, is... Ray Anderson was CEO of Interface, and it was his mission, his passion. Do you think that change can be made in an organization when it's not the CEO that's driving the change? Or does it really take that person? And he was not just the CEO, he was the founder. What is your opinion on where that passion and drive and commitment needs to come from? It's a tough question, Leanne. You know, you know, I've talked with Raj Sisodia about this and other, other major leaders in the conscious capitalism movement. And the, the thing that they think, and I, I reluctantly agree with, is that it's, it is next to impossible to drive a full-scale corporate transformation unless you have the full-throated buy-in of the CEO and the executive, you know, the executive leadership team. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely necessary, but even then it's not sufficient. And so even if you have the CEO, now look at uh, Emmanuel Faber, who's the, the now ousted leader of Danone who was trying to do a big transformation at Danone, um, unfortunately didn't have the enough of the investors locked up and was forced out by the investors and the board. There's a number of different things yeah. that have to conspire to get this together. And so when you have a CEO and founder, especially somebody that has the kind of stature within interface that Ray Anderson had, well, shoot, now, now we're talking, right? If you happen to have that kind of a situation, and if, if any of your listeners are that kind of a person, <laughs> then they they can do this much more easily than anybody else can. It's not impossible to do it from other places. It's just much, much, much harder. And so to give you an, an, an example, there's a woman named Leith Sharp. And I met Leith because I asked Aaron Mizan, who is a character in the film and the current chief sustainability officer at Interface. I asked her why there aren't more interfaces. Um, and she said, well, it's not a technical challenge. Uh, we know how to get companies to be very, very high environmental performers. Uh, we've got the frameworks. There's the consultants that are out there. The technology is there. It's none of that. What it is, is it's understanding the way that you actually drive change within a company. And her go-to resource on this is, is Leith Sharp. And she runs the executive education program at Harvard for sustainability leadership. And mm. she has this framework for change 
leadership that can happen from anywhere within an organization that is one of the most mind-blowing things I've ever seen. And, and she did it at Harvard about the same era as Ray Anderson, but she was not in a senior executive position. She was a manager of facilities and she was trying to get them to embrace lead as a, uh -huh. as a thing. And so her first major meeting where she was going to try and do this, she presented all this stuff. Unbeknownst to her, one of the faculty advisors had just written a big, big paper about how lead was crap. And she almost lost her job, right? And, and so she, whoa, she didn't understand what was going on, but it set her on this course of being able to understand this process of what she calls signal and antenna matching, where if you're an intrapreneur, you're somebody who's inside of an organization trying to drive change, you actually have to be very rigorous and strategic about whose yes you need for what to try to get the change to happen. And then there's this process of understanding their antenna. What is it they care about? What are their concerns? Mm -hmm. And then you match your signal to their antenna as best you can. And that that essentially is the process of change leadership. And it goes way deeper than this, of course, but we don't have time to go into all of it. Right. But Leith and I have been able to work together a little bit. And um, I don't want to give away too much, but there is an upcoming project where we're hoping to make her work a lot more accessible for folks. Uh, right now, it's baked into a program that the Institute for Corporate Transformation offers that I wrote uh, that is called the Entrepreneur Accelerator. Um, and so, uh, so you can get access to some of the stuff there. But to get back to your core question, if it's if it's top down in a hierarchical system, that's always going to be a better way to start. But it's not hopeless to start from other places. But you really have to know what you're doing. And, and Leith's training is the kind of training that will teach people how to do it. Yeah. Well, while we're on that note, one of the things when you were in Dallas, you were speaking about, I would say, like an ecosystem that that's trying to be built where we don't. Instead of waiting for organizations to get fully mature and for a conscious CEO to have this light bulb moment to be able to drive the change, that we can build these ideas into education at an early age, especially at call in college. And I think that, you know, my guess is because I have daughters in their 20s, they're already way more conversant in these topics than I was at that age, even though I was concerned about the environment. I, I couldn't speak about it and some of the social challenges. They're way more conversant than I was. What is happening? Or maybe I could just ask you what your vision is for creating like a, a mass group of people who are coming out of education systems and moving into business with these ideas and ideals already awake in them. Totally. And, and I guess there's, there's, uh, there's kind of two, two points on this one, Leanne. So, so the vision for Beyond Zero is we've got this, this, these impact partners uh, that, are, that are companies that are willing to give a $10,000 sponsorship to the film. And we're hoping to find 150 of those this year. And if we can, then we are going to try to release the film to any educator anywhere in the world that wants to use the film to teach business, uh, along with a suite of complementary curriculum support materials um, that help them to teach sort of in this other frame that I'm talking about at the top of the call. Instead of the Milton Friedman, minimize yeah. costs, maximize profit, like we, we need to be looking at a more three-dimensional model of business and not something that's just black and white. Uh, and so there's lots of different ways to teach that in finance, in marketing, in management. And we need to create all of those resources to make it as simple as possible for the educators who want to teach this stuff. And there are many of them all over the world. I bet there um, are. That's that's the that's the vision, right? And so exactly as you articulated, you know, can we have these this next generation of business leaders, these aspiring business leaders, come out of the formal training processes that we've established as a society? ready to do business in this more holistic way, um, this way that, that performs better by every measure, as opposed to have them have to unlearn the unlearn, things that right. their professors told them that, that have been outdated now for 20 years, which unfortunately is still the absolute dominant curriculum in MBA programs and in business, business today. But, but I would argue, Liam, that, that as the first point, that's one of the things we got to get done. And the vision is to get that done. But that's only one piece of it. If you look at the way that business leaders are trained to think, I think that there's five different places that we have to do similar campaigns, right? So business school, business academics, that's one. 
A second would be um, the business media, uh, the way that we frame business stories and performance, who gets to be the great CEOs that we tell stories about, yes. right? That's a big deal. And so the more rounded that conversation can be, the more that that while Ray Anderson would have been one of these incredible entrepreneurs worthy of the cover of magazines, can we also have in that story the environmental footprint of the company that he created, right? And how he's trying to do that. And if, even for Interface, there's places where they're still not great, right? They're, they're in Georgia and, and they're, they're really not there yet on diversity and inclusion and a few other things. And so- and I want to just stop there and say that's yeah. where they don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. Yes. Because you could really look at interface and if you wanted to poke holes, you could poke holes and say they haven't reached a good diversity. They're, they're no. not an exemplar of diversity. Nope. No, they're not. They're, they're not but employee they, owned. They're, there's a lot of different ways you can poke holes in right, that than any right. company. But, but, but they've done some amazing good work and I'm sure have inspired a, a lot of other people and, and created a product that like that I can buy as a homeowner. I can have this. So I just wanted to say there are a lot of times when we let the perfect get in the way of the good and we shouldn't. Well, and I think it's a really important point too, Leanne, because that, that's the same thing that stops a lot of companies from starting this journey is that they see all these different places where, God, there's the, all, all the things, there's environmentalism and there's economic justice and there's where social justice and there's, you know, animal rights and welfare. And there's like, where do we, where do we even begin? And if we're going to start to do anything, aren't we going to immediately get shit for everything that we're not doing? Excuse me. Yeah. Unfortunately, yes, <laughs> they will. That. Yes, they will. Um, yeah. But Interface has a really great lesson for us here as well. If we could just digress for one more moment on this, which is that some of the genius of the way that Interface did their communications around this early in the journey is there's another cutting room floor story where apparently Ray Anderson went to their head of marketing as they started this journey. And he said, if you say one word about sustainability that I have not approved personally, you are going to be fired that day. Wow. There is no greenwashing. There is no claim we're going to make that is us ahead of our skis. All right. I am the messenger on this until we understand what we're doing. Is that clear? Right. And, wow. and so what and Ray's message, as, as you see in the film was, I am a plunderer of the earth. Someday people like me will be thrown in jail and I'm trying to fix it, right? That was the message. It wasn't, look at this awesome stuff we're doing. It was, look at all the awful stuff we've done and everybody's doing that and we have to fix it, right? It, that kind of messaging is, again, it's something that very few corporations are willing to do, but it immediately inoculates you from criticism because you're your own harshest critic. And that would work across every kind of, social justice initiative that's out there. It's just, we have to understand how to talk about it. But that form of talking about it helps to raise the issue for everybody else Absolutely. to deal with too, right? And so there's just, there's genius there. And so again, to your point though, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, but the best way to do that is by holding up how much farther we still have to go so that it's all in context, right? And, and yeah. Interface did that masterfully. So, so to return briefly to the thread we were on before. Yeah, so we've we're got talking that we had about business school, and then the second school, is how we talk media. about success. Business. Exactly. Okay. So both of those things teach business people how to think. Another thing that teaches them how to think is sources of capital, right? So what, what your bank has you disclose when they're looking at whether or not to give you a loan or what an investor cares about has a huge impact on what you're going to care about, right? And 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 there are, there are lots of people that are trying to figure out how to quantify goodwill, how to quantify the, the kind of love that employees have for a company with a great higher purpose, how to quantify mm -hmm. carbon negative products, right? Like th those kinds of things. And we, we're not there yet, but there's a lot of people making great progress, but that's a big one. The fourth one would be CEOs own social circles. In forums like YPO, uh, there are still, if, if you know, there's a lot of conscious capitalism CEOs that don't talk about it much in YPO because people think they're crazy. YPO, for those that don't know, is the Young President's Organization. Uh, so, so it's it's in those forums. The more normal this becomes, the more that that it is is something that'll work. And then finally, consultants. If you hire. EY or McKinsey to come and tell you how to approach a problem, they are all still by and large thinking in the old business paradigm. And so until they learn how to do this stuff in the new business paradigm, it's going to be a, a drag on progress here. But what actually needs to happen is if those five domains could all tip into the, the, new, the 3D version of business thinking, um, then it, it becomes a foregone conclusion that that way of business becomes the default mode 
presence on earth. And I think that must be our goal. And so educators, that's the beginning, but we've got to do the other four as well. Yeah. You know what I wanted to add to your, how CEOs, when they gather, because YPO is very well known and it's, it's a high bar. You know, a lot of people that own businesses, I would say most people that own businesses or that run businesses are not in YPO because those are larger organizations. So there's EO, which is Entrepreneur's Organization. There's Vistage. There are a lot of female CEO organizations. And so I would cast a wide net and say any organization, and I don't think that you are being exclusive, but I hope that anyone that's listening that is a member of any of these groups, and I'm in a Vistage group, and we don't talk about conscious capitalism so much or conscious business practices, uh, but this is a good, you know, as people think, as you're listening, what can I be doing? This is one thing that we can be doing is that we can be bringing them into all of our business conversations and all of the ways that we think about what's the impact that we want to make. Yes. And there's uh, kind of two entities that are already really out in front on this. And so one of them is uh, is the, the Conscious Capitalism Senior Leaders Network uh, okay. is a network that is built around these principles that is a great spot for people to find camaraderie if it's a fit for them. Uh, but interestingly, there's another executive forum called REF that over the last year has really brought in some pretty deep purpose practice uh, that was actually uh, written by a consultant that just got certified today in conscious capitalism named Jessica Schneider. She came in and helped them to understand how to do a really deep purpose practice, and that is now incorporated into REF's membership model. Um, And so there's progress being made on all of these fronts. But as you said, just to underscore, the more that people can bring this to the existing forums uh, is is, is critical. The one you didn't mention that I'll also mention, Leanne, because I've done a lot of work in this area, is, is even local chambers of commerce. Uh, it's a great Absolutely. place for these kinds of this content and these conversations. Yeah, yeah. So I want to. You mentioned a consultant that's certified in conscious capitalism. Yes. S- say more about that. What is this certification? How do people, if someone is listening and they're like, "I'd like to talk to one of those consultants," how do they get in touch with someone who's certified? If they're on the Conscious Capitalism website, there's a, each of the certified consultants and there are, I think Jessica's the 10th. So I think there are 10 in the world at the moment. There'll, there'll probably be double that many by the end of the year. But um, uh, they all have profiles and contact information at uh, ConsciousCapitalism.org. Okay. And I'll put that in there. I'm going to take a little bit of a right-hand turn here because one of the things that's also been exciting to me about what you're doing is how you have blended so many of your own passions. So you have a background in theater and or film, and that's also part of your family business, like your dad and your mom, and you grew up with that. You are also a lover of the environment, conscious capitalism. I think you have a background in social policy as well. And I talk to so many people that have been a little more narrow and even kids coming out of college and they think they have to choose one thing. And what you've done in bringing so many of your passions together is also really inspiring for me. And so I don't, I don't even know what my question is, but I want you to talk about that. Sure. Yeah. And, um, I think the best way to talk about it is in the form of story. Yeah, I I thought I was going to be a political person. Um, And so I was really into like local politics and all that when I was, I think I ran my first canvas operation when I was 14, uh, freshman (laughs) in high school. Anyway, got a dual degree in theater and political science uh, and then went to Washington, D.C. to work for a member of Congress while getting a master in public policy. And uh, I didn't even understand what public policy was. I thought it was like a degree in politics. And then there were all these statistics and measurements. And I I am not a math person. So I I barely got through that thing alive, but I did it. But I I very quickly discovered that I I was wrong. I do not like politics. I I just didn't (laughs) think that it was the right venue for change. It just, it's not going to happen fast enough that way. Interesting. And and it was right about the time that I was leaving there. It was actually great because I ended up meeting the woman who had become my wife uh, on the Hill. And then she got into law school. So I moved away to be with her. And right about at that time is when I, and I don't even remember where I got it, but I got Ray Anderson's book, Confessions of a Radical Industrialist. And in that book, he cribs Paul Hawken from the Ecology of Commerce 
talking about how in modern society, business is the social institution that makes the world go round. You know, at one point in time, it was government and monarchies. And another point in time, it was religion. But now it's business. business. And so if we want to change the world, we have to change business. And it was sort of this like, that was my spear in the chest moment was like, holy smokes, right? That, okay. But I think at the time I still had it that, um, that, 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 it was somehow not capitalism. The capitalism was wrong um, and that, that you had to have some other more ethical kind of a thing replace it. But then it was three years later, I found another book. It was Raj Sisodia's book, Firms of Endearment. Yes. It really makes the case that companies that, that operate in the way that we've been discussing, you know, his study is that they outperform the S&P 500 by 1,400%. It was over 15 years but, but dramatically better performance. And the, the good to great companies, which is one of the other best-selling business books of all time, they only beat the S&P by six to one. So, so this is way better than even that. And so that to me was like, wait a minute, I've had this wrong. This isn't not capitalism. This is what capitalism is supposed to become. This is the destiny for all of this. We just have to, have, so, so that it became for me, what do I need to do to accelerate the adoption of these ideas so that this just becomes business as usual. And that's sort of like tripped into my life's purpose, right? And so at that point, I had a background in theater. I had politics. I had I had some other stuff. And I, I like I'm a storyteller. And so I just started telling the interface story to different companies that would listen to me at like little local chamber of commerce. And y'all, I'm talking about in Moose Pass, Alaska. Okay. (laughs) Find that on a map and you'll understand what I'm talking about, right? It's like I did a presentation on this kind of stuff in a Jeff and Rose Hetrick's living room for 10 people to talk about because it was where I was. And this is before the movie. This is long before. This This is 2012. So anyway, I guess the thing is like, you can't plan it. There's no strategy where you say, oh, it's going to come together like this. But looking back, it's like, oh, shoot, look. And so the movie, when I did the movie, Leanne, it was because I'd been telling the story and consulting for a long time. But I was like, it's such a powerful story. And the only places that it's told are in raised books that are getting to be 10 years old. And and a handful of people like me that love the story so much, we tell it. Like, it, it's time for there to be another telling. Then as I started looking into that, I, I realized there's also this whole second chapter that's the second half of the movie. And so it's like, well, maybe, maybe I could try this. And as an experiment, is this effective or not? And I had no idea, but when it was released, suddenly it was like, holy smokes, like they're, they're teaching this thing in the biggest business school in Moscow, in the biggest really? business school in Mexico, in China. And like, it's gone way bigger and further than I could ever go as a consultant. And so it's like, shoot. Okay. And so it's like this mix of you following your passion, you following your skill set being clear on your purpose, and then just trying shit. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, that's Let, I'm so happy I'm going to get to put an E next to this. That's, that's right. This that's episode. right. Be careful because Nathan has a potty mouth. Uh, but yeah, it, it's <laughs> that's all right. Anyway, be careful because I'll be right in there with you. But it is. Uh, it's like, you know, there's that, uh, I think it's a somewhat misunderstood notion. We call it ikigai. It's not really what the Japanese meant. But the way that we popularly understand that is it's sort of like, what's yours at the nexus of those things? And I know everybody mm-hmm. says that. Um, but it's like, if you can't find the perfect thing, at least move in that direction. And that's going to be the right direction for you to move. And, and economic concerns, it's don't throw caution to the wind and go live in a van by the river. It's like, no, no, have it make sense, but keep moving that way. Because what, what you've got may be a totally unique puzzle piece in the journey that humanity has to go on. And if you don't play your piece, it may take generations longer for us to get it done. Mm. And so it's a responsibility. It's not about you. It's about what you're supposed to be for for the whole thing, right? So there's a responsibility where we need you to figure out the shape of your piece and play it um, and, and move in that direction. I don't know that I've got mine done yet. I don't think I do. I'm still learning and still figuring it out. But I guess the thing that I would say is that the number of times that I have to do something I don't really want to do is so rare now. Every meeting on my calendar, everything I'm doing, it, it's not easy, but it's like, I, I want to, I choose right. to, I want to. And it's possible for everybody to have work like that. So I'm so glad to hear how the film is being used. The other thing that I've just been so inspired by is from my end, I mean, I knew that you 
Actually, I didn't know that you were producing the film. I knew after it was out. And of course, it came out right at about the time. I think you were hoping to go to Cannes with it in 2020, but the pandemic hit. And so everything has was delayed. And I just thought, oh, my God, this guy has taken such a risk. I mean, it's a huge investment of your your time, your passion. I don't know what resources. I mean, I don't know anything about the funding, but it, it just felt... I mean, I know that you didn't have huge Hollywood backers uh, behind you here. You're, you're shaking your head. So for all the folks out there on a hike listening, you know, Nathan has got a big, you know, like shaking his head. No. And if you don't have that belief about playing your part and following your passion, the risk that you took would not be possible. It wouldn't no. make sense. No. If, if I may, just a couple of stories about this. It's like there, there's an element of boldness where you know, it's not going to show up on a silver platter. You you got to go make it happen is, is my experience. And you know, when I saw the opportunity for the story, I sort of sheepishly went to my father and I was like, hey, I think I've got a really good story here. Like, would you be willing to, to try this on? And he was like, yeah, go see if you can put the deal together. And I'm like... Mm. Put the deal together, right? I've never done that. Like, how do you, how do, you do that? And so I just started to like ask around a little bit and, and learn some things. And the first way we structured it got enough money to to start. And it was a, you know the, the co CEOs of Big B Coffee, and I'd been consulting with them for oh, seven years. Right. And so they were willing to give a commitment to get it started. And then you know there was a family friend that put in a little bit, and it was enough to get a shoot done. And so we got a shoot done, um, and we were able to cut a trailer from that shoot. And then I was able to put, you know put the trailer on stage at the Conscious Capitalism Annual Conference and at the Conscious Leaders Forum from Conscious Company Magazine, and that got a little bit more interest, which was good. And then um, there was the the 25th anniversary of the day that Ray Anderson gave that very first speech. Yes, we rushed to cut the scene that tells that story. Because I had gotten it on the first shoot. And so we we were able to release that scene on the 25th anniversary of the day that that moment happened. And nobody cared. Uh, it, I was expecting like a big thing. Uh, we tried to do some press. Nobody cared. But I had it. And so a couple months later, um, I had the opportunity to go to the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit. And there was no promise. There was no, it wasn't on the agenda, but I was sort of like, I was actually encouraged by another person that was at the CEO summit that I needed to just go talk to the organizer, Amanda Catherine Roman and say, is there any way you could find eight minutes in the schedule to put this on stage? It was my first time at the CEO summit. I was way out of my league. I was scared as hell, but I went up and I asked. And somehow she said, yes. She said, you've got literally, I've got a 10 minute slot. You can talk for one minute and then we roll. Okay, go. Um, And so suddenly, boom, there it is. One minute, I get to say the thing, it rolls. People love it. And I think that's it. Until the next day, I get called aside by a CEO who was attending, who started a conversation that resulted in enough money to complete the film. Fantastic. And so just the the more I learn about it, the better, the better it gets. I could talk to you forever. And I want to make sure that we get a few more things out. So you have a podcast series, maybe five 30 minute episodes that feature different people. What's the name of that podcast series? Because I want to put it in the show notes and I want people to hear about it. For sure. Yeah. It's uh, it's called 10 Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism. And it's okay. a, it's 10 episodes. It's 10 um, episodes. All right. Yep, it's a great series. So I uh, highly recommend if, if folks are interested. Yep. Yep. The other thing that we talked about is this idea of 100 months to change. Yes. So let's talk about that. Sure. So um, September 1st of 2021 was the day that there were 100 months left in the decade. Uh, we are told that this is a decade where we are either going to make sufficient progress on climate change and other stuff, uh, or we may lose the opportunity to do so. And so this is a, a big, big decade. And 100 months to change is not a doomsday clock. It's an aspirational game clock. How far can we get? How much can we get done in these 100 months? And so as we are talking right now, Leanne, there's 92 months to change. But where we launched it, we launched 100 months to change on September 1st. Again, uh, we met, I convened a bunch of folks that collaborate with me from around the world in Atlanta, in the room 
that Ray Anderson gave his speech. I just keep getting chills. In that room. Yeah. And, and, you know, September 1st is the day after the anniversary, right? August 31 was, was the day he did it. And so we were there on August 31. We premiered the film for the first time live that night. It's in the middle of a COVID wave. It was not smart, but we did it. Um, and then uh, the, the next day, uh, the clock started on 100 Months to Change. And so it's a campaign. It's a coalition. Of, of people like us from all around the world. Right now, there are 13 countries participating uh, that are working on building what is necessary for this three-dimensional version of business to become business as usual. And so if folks are interested in more information on that, it is at 100monthstochange.com. And uh, we need all the help we can get because we are in this game right now to see how far can we get toward making that business as usual manifest in the world before the game clock runs out. So I'm, again, just all of the ways that you're casting a wide net and bringing more and more people in, I think it's, it's vital. And I didn't know all of this was going on. So I'm so happy, uh, again, for this opportunity. All right. So we talked about your 10 things you should know, 100 months to change. You listed when we were together at SMU, there were like five or six elements that a few of the different organizations like Conscious Capitalism, maybe B, B Labs, some other organizations have all agreed on these six elements are important for stakeholder capitalism, conscious capitalism, whatever you want to call it. What are those things? Sure. And, and just the, the, the quick tee up for this is that um, I was struggling a couple of years ago with what is the relationship between the sustainable development goals from the UN and ESG and B-Lab and conscious capitalism and local first and all of these different movements that are calling for, we'll say, an expanded definition of success for business. Is there a common, simple way what is it that they all have in common? And so we convened a group of people that work in all of those different spaces informally. So we're not going for formal adoption or any of that. It's just an informal definition that is common to everything. And you can find this at, at uh, the stakeholderscore.com, just stakeholderscore.com. But it's basically the six things that we think would be what that expanded definition of success for business are. Right. And so it is uh, collaborative stakeholder relationships. And so the distinction is rather than I'm going to get everything I can out of this negotiation. And if you're too much of a sucker to watch out for your own interests, then too bad, because I'm here to win for me. Mm -hmm. This is, no, no, we actually need to set up our transactions such that I'm making sure that you can win too. And you're doing the same for me. That kind of an interaction produces far superior results for all parties. And so we've got to get that kind of management idea, right? The second thing is this notion that rather than using people in your company, like your employees or your other stakeholders for your gain, right, I'm going to pay you as little as possible, work you as hard as I can so I can get maximum benefit from you. Instead of that, is there a way that you can actually have their experience of working at your company help to make them the best version of themselves? Can you help them to uh, become who they want to be as people, uh, help them feel meaning, help them be who they need to be for their family. When you do that, counterintuitively, they perform far better and you actually end up getting better performance than if you do the other thing. But if, if, you, if you're after the performance and you're trying to be nice to get the performance, it's not going to work. Genuinely, is there a way that business leaders can understand the responsibility they have to care for the lives that are entrusted mm -hmm. to them during the workday? That notion is something that changes everything. And so that's the second. And it's kind of sort of a workplace culture kind of a thing, right? Uh -huh. The third is in every society on earth, there are so many legacies of discrimination and racism and sexism and all kinds of other isms. Um, we are all complicit in the perpetuation of many of those systems, consciously or subconsciously. There are many ways that companies can very consciously, very deliberately disrupt and dismantle those systems of discrimination. And where companies can do that, they should. Um, there are huge gains that come from that. Uh, and just to be very tactical about it, one great example is hiring people that have previous felonies. And a lot of times you, you hire them strategically. It's probably not a great idea to hire somebody who is, you know, convicted of crime of, of like fraud uh, and, and money laundering into a CFO role. 
Right. Maybe not the right, right. <laughs> but there are many, many cases where we don't care what the felony is. If you had a felony, then, then we, we don't even give you an interview. Give people the interview because there's an amazing talent pool that is so hungry for an opportunity to rebuild their lives. They will be incredibly hardworking, yes. super loyal, and there's huge advantages when you can just take a look at what that thing does to perpetuate the systems of discrimination in our society and stop it. And then there's all these advantages that accrue. And, and I can go on and on with those examples, but that's the third. The fourth is really playing the financial game where companies have got to make money. But who is the beneficiary of that money? Are we amassing all the wealth at the top with just a few people? Or are we making sure that everybody in the entire business ecosystem, the whole supply chain, can at least make, meet their basic needs and have financial security? If you can do that, that too has been shown to create massive uh, resiliency in supply chains. Really neat work coming out of uh, the Saeed Business School at Oxford under the, under the name of the Economics of Mutuality on this Fantastic. stuff. Very, very good. So that's four. Five is environmental prosperity or even regeneration. Like Interface, we've talked about that plenty. And then the sixth and final one is you could be doing all of that and still think that the purpose of your company is to make money. Nope. There is a higher purpose for your company. There's something that your company exists to achieve in the world. And if you don't know what that is, all the rest of it will ring hollow until you do. And so that's the sixth and final piece. So we would call that the stakeholder score. And we would suggest to companies, management teams, that they begin to manage in those spaces to see how much value they can create in each of those six spaces. And if they do that, they will be very firmly on the road to blow the doors off of ESG, the Sustainable Development Goals, Conscious Capitalism. They'll become certified benefit corporations if they want to, and on and on and on. Um, that was what we would consider to be the open source expanded scorecard for success for business. Excellent. You mentioned earlier that uh, the clearer that you've become, the less that you are doing these days that you don't want to do. Like everything is an opportunity and it just comes through in spades in this conversation. I think that the the energy has just amped up and up and up and up the more that we've, that we've been talking today. And I'm so glad that you're at the helm of what you're doing and what you're bringing and you're thinking big. Like I said, the net that you're casting is wide and the risks that you're taking are not small. And I'm really, really appreciative, Nathan. It's just fantastic to hear about what you're doing and what you're doing isn't my gift, but I'm glad to know that I can follow you and that I can talk about what you're doing and I can recommend what you're doing and I can play whatever role that I'm meant to play. I'm not meant to play your role, but I can play my role. First of all, Ian, thank you so much for saying all of that. This is, it's flattering and it's so helpful to have the opportunity to talk about this and to get help spreading the word. And, and I think what you just said is, is exactly the thing. It's like, for me, I feel like my understanding of what role I'm supposed to play blew up just in the last 18 months. And, it, and it's a constant evolution, right? And so for all of us, again, it's the just keep moving in the direction that you feel called to. And you never know when it'll happen, if it'll happen. You, you never know if, if it's something you do, tease up the thing that comes after you. But it's what there is for each of us. And so, you know, just, just as I've done it, I know you're doing it. And I guess that would be our mutual call to your audience, yeah, is the, whoever yeah. you are, wherever you are, yeah. figure well, out what you have to do. And what I'm appreciating and what you're saying as well, Nathan, is that you didn't set out however many years ago with this vision to be exactly where you were, but you pointed yourself in a direction and you took steps that felt right, that were leading in a certain direction. But it wasn't, I think that we get taught a lot that we need to have a vision, a very specific vision that we're going toward. And I don't believe that. I don't, because I think it ends up looking different than we thought it would. So I'm really excited, again, that you're sharing it in this way that you didn't say, oh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I have this vision and I'm exactly where I thought I would be. That's not the story that you're telling. No. And not that many people have that story. So I do think, you know, like point yourself in the direction and keep saying yes to the things that feel in alignment and on purpose for you. 
Can I give you two just brief anecdotes on that before we? Okay. So the first time that I thought I had an articulation for what I thought was my personal purpose was uh, just three words, all people thrive. Um, and that was like, I don't even all know it. Thrive. All okay. people thrive. That, that's the, that was the thing. And I knew I wanted to use my life to be able to move the, the world in that direction because there's a lot of people that aren't thriving and there isn't a good reason for that. There's enough resources. There's enough money. There's enough yes. food. There's enough. There's no good reason that all people can't thrive. And so all people thrive was it. Uh, and then I didn't know what the venue for that was, but I knew that's what I wanted to do, right? And so then with the conscious capitalism stuff, I was like, oh, okay. So transforming business is the best way for all people to thrive. Got it. Okay, so that's that's what that is. And then, uh, okay, so then what's the best way to transform business? How do we get that done? And everything we've talked about is the the stuff I've learned from others. Um, I was just working with a with a coach just before this call. I got some teasing from a board member of Conscious Capitalism recently who said, "Nathan, you do so many things, nobody knows what to hire you for. What, what is it you do?" And I was like, well, I, "I can't actually answer that question." But uh, uh, Tim Kelly, who's another certified uh, consultant in Conscious Capitalism, he helped me see that uh, at least. Recently and for the foreseeable future, I unlock companies and turn them into the greatest version of themselves. And that everything that I do is focused on that because that's what leverage point I see I can sort of do. And, and, And so the best way to do that, though is through, yes, you need to have the technical consulting and all that. And I've got some game. And now there's this huge crew that we've got to be able to do that, which is great because they do it better than I do. But one of the things that I do really well is I inspire the beginning of that process, right? So that it's when the senior leadership and when people in companies realize, holy smokes, this is possible. I want to be like that right? That's a big piece of my role. And then ideally we figure out, okay, what gets in the way? Let's remove that barrier, remove the stuff that gets in the way until it's relatively simple for every company to be able to make that kind of transition until we're no longer transitioning companies. They are built and born that way. Um, And so in terms of like my own vision. It, it's all started from the purpose, which I've always, I've been clear on it for decades, is this all people thrive. And so whatever your nugget of a purpose is, once you know that, then you get to dance. And here's the second anecdote, which is another, it's a, it's the same board member that gave me teasing about that nobody knows what to hire me for. His name's Dave Pitnayak. And in my very first Conscious Capitalism conference, uh, he led a session on design thinking. And he said to everybody, uh, okay, everybody build a better ladder. It's sort of like, uh, I don't know, anti-slip grips. Is it, uh, how do you do it? And he said, okay, now design a way to reach something on a high shelf. And so, oh, rocket boots, uh, rotating shelves. You know, it just, it blows the doors off of creativity when you're focused on, in his words, the function that needs to be served, not the form. The form, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, the function, and for any listener, your purpose is your function. All people thrive. Okay, how do you do that? There's a thousand different ways to do it. Which one do you like best? Great, go that way, right? And so it's like, I guess it's like that, is, is it don't be a doctor. You know, what, what is the function, not the yeah, form? Yeah. Yeah. Focus on the function and then figure out what your interest and passion and joy is. And you may well find that all these disparate parts of yourself that you were holding differently actually can come together to be able to serve that function in a way that only you can. And, and that's that's it, right? And, and I guess that might be a lifelong evolution to find better and better ways to do I that and so. to dance with changing circumstances. Yep, I think so. So here, I'm, I'm going to like fall in line with uh, Dave Pecknayek and, and, your, uh, and teasing you. So now, if people want to stay in touch with what you're doing, know about you, What's the best place? I actually don't even know. Like, what's the one place if I want to know what Nathan's up to and I want to stay in touch with that or I want to engage with Nathan, how do I do that? Yeah, 100 Must to Change is is the spot to be. And it's not just me. It's okay. people like me from all over the world uh, that are leading efforts like this in their countries. Okay. So 100MonthsToChange.com. And there is a monthly call where we all share the coolest stuff that's happening in our own countries that is that is available for anybody who wants. Um, and so there's, uh, there's a lot that's coming, but that's the spot. Fantastic. All right. I could uh, speak with you for another hour or two. But we'll close it here. And thank you so much for what you're doing, for being on the podcast, for coming to Dallas and re-inspiring me. I'm so glad to see the film again. And I and I hope more and more people see it and have the same inspiration. 
Thank well, you. Thank you, Leanne, for, for the conversation and for your work in the world. It's, uh, it's, it's awesome to be in league with you. Yeah, yeah, very good. Thank you. I do hope you enjoyed the conversation that you just heard between me and Nathan Havey and that you learned something that you didn't know about conscious or stakeholder capitalism and whatever you call it. I just hope that you learned that business can be and business should be a force for good. It should be a primary vehicle for transforming this scary and stuck places that we're finding ourselves in these days. But thank you for listening. I'd really appreciate your likes, your comments and shares on whatever platform you're listening to today or listening on, I should say. Rise Leaders is on YouTube now as well, which is probably the best way to engage in ongoing conversations if you have any comments on this particular episode. And again, there are many links to the resources that Nathan mentioned in the show notes, and I hope that you will do whatever you can to elevate your part of the world.